Welcome to the You Lead Podcast, brought to you by the Council for School Leadership of the Alberta Teachers Association. So everyone, welcome back. And we're, this next section, we're going to join with Dr. Pazzi Salberg, who was joining our room at the beginning at 1 p.m. Alberta time was 5 a.m. Sydney time. So uh, Dr. Salberg, we really appreciate you getting up this morning to, to be with us all. And uh, we hope that the first part of the this session has woken you up sufficiently to um, be your true self with us all. So without further ado, um, Pazzi Salberg. Just, uh, I don't know if everybody has Pazzi Salberg, but if I could, Pazzi, I want to just shine a little light on on you because I'm not sure people are aware of um, how prolific you are as a scholar and author, um, what a gifted teacher you are, but also what a world-renowned leader you are. Um, Dr. Salberg won the legal prize for uh, improving the quality of education worldwide. So anybody who's ever played with Lego, to be invited to Denmark and being given the Lego prize is a, is a huge uh, a huge win. But not only that, he has won what is ostensibly the uh, Education Nobel Laureate in the Gramer Award. Um, Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond, uh, Dr. Hargraves, and others. Oh, there it is. Look at that. Little Beatles. I love it. Um, were you not given like a lifetime of Lego or something? Yes, I was. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was so jealous about that. Um, but Dr. Salberg is currently a professor of education policy at the University of New South Wales. Um, he was also a professor at Harvard Graduate School of Education, um, and before that worked for the Finnish National Agency in the Center of International Mobility. So Pazzi is, uh, is truly a scholar, uh, a prolific author. Um, he is a gifted, very gifted teacher, and one of the reasons that he's so sought after globally um, but also uh, a leader in education um, around the world, and not just in, in what he brings about the Finnish way of education. Um, this afternoon, we've asked Dr. Solberg to talk about what it, what it means, um, what we mean by play, but also its role and important in, in importance in learning, and especially at a time of a global pandemic. How do we think about play, and what does that look like? So... Dr. Salberg, thank you for getting up so early. It's great to see you. You're looking great. And uh, we look forward to your presentation, followed by Armand's response and Chris helping curate questions. So if everybody can uh, add their questions in the Q&A, that would be great um, as the uh, conversation goes on. And then Chris will help curate those together uh, at the end of this presentation. There you go. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Jeff, for inviting me to this and, and Phil um, as, as well. There's actually no better way to start your day at 5 a.m. than spend an hour listening to um, Michael Rich and then uh, a very kind introduction by, by Phil McRae. It's, it's good to um, talk to you all. I, I wish you will have a, um, a great great and successful school year uh, ahead of you. Uh, we all understand that this is a very different, this is going to be a very different school year than any, any of the other ones. So, so that's, that's where your leadership and, um, and our leadership actually is put in the real test to see how, how we can and lead and manage and inspire people in a very 
very strange uh, times um, like this. Of course, one of the things um, uh, that we all know is that we actually don't know what is going to happen. We don't know exactly um, how the school year is going to go. We, we don't uh, know. We don't know all the all the things that uh, this uh, COVID nineteen or, or health pandemic will bring to to us. Uh, interesting thing is that it's not entirely about what we do. Uh, it uh, depends very much about what the other people are doing and, and how other nations and uh, the leaders of the nations, how they are understanding the responsibility of, um, you know, globally, globally taking care of not only uh, for themselves, but everybody else. And that's a, that's a kind of a thing that we, we are facing here. Yes. I, I will speak to you about the, um, uh, the power and importance of play a little bit, but I, I, I take this kind of a, opportunity also to continue a little bit the, this conversation that Michael Michael Rich um, uh, started about the how the, the coronavirus situation um, has affected school systems and children and teachers in different parts of the world. I, I talked to you from Sydney, uh, Australia. We are just uh, past the kind of heart of the winter here, um, looking looking forward to spring and a little bit nicer weather. I've been here with my family for about two years now. I still follow very closely what uh, what is happening in Finland. I'm writing actually quite a bit about um, how the Finnish system that is often regarded as a, one of the model education school systems uh, to, together with the the, uh, the Canadian uh, systems in the world. So many people are kind of asking how the Finns and the, the system overall is responding to this. Then we have our children here in the public schools, public school in the neighborhood here in um, in Sydney, um, very closely working with the leadership uh, in that school. And my wife is the um, uh, leading the parents, uh, parents community and council there as well. <coughs> so this gives me also kind of an opportunity to see what what is happening elsewhere. So I speak a little bit about this. Uh, First, how how uh, Finland and Australia are kind of uh, coping with this uh, situation. We are also in a different, different, uh, <clears throat> very different situation in the sense that here the school year is has just passed the the midpoint, so we are in the second half of the academic year, whereas in Finland schools actually uh, many of the schools resume uh, today or yesterday, today this week. So that's it's it's a, it's a little bit different thing. But I'm going to share you just like Michael did. My um, my screen here, so that you can see some of the data. I'm going to show you. Let me see. I hope you can see me. See me, all right. And I can, if you want to have, if you want to have a copy of this uh, PDF of this uh, slides, I'm happy to happy to do that. Let's take a. I'm, I speak a little bit about the um, uh, this this kind of a situation in in Finland and in Australia, assuming that this might be something that uh, some of you, hopefully many of you as leaders there in, in Alberta find interesting um, and, and probably also helpful to think about what, what is happening in other places. So very quickly about the, uh, the uh, Finnish thing. So first of all, the schools were closed just like in, uh, in about 190 other countries in the world in March, and they remained closed about, two months. 
the interesting thing in Finland was that the government uh, government decided in the evening of the 16th of March um, that the um, all the public places will be closed. So the government couldn't um, regulate or announce that the schools must close, uh, close but they they closed all the public spaces. And that's, of course, meant that the school gates were closed and uh, the teachers had to find a, another way to organize um, uh, teaching. That is kind of a legal legal right of, of every every child. It's a fairly complicated legal thing. It's not just simply closing the schools and then do something else. But, you know, in, in most cases, this was something that schools and municipalities or districts that run the schools had to had to figure out how they do this without breaking breaking the law and 18th of uh, uh, of march which was uh, basically 36 hours later 100% of the schools um, uh, most of the primary schools um, and 100% of high, uh, high schools were closed uh, in the morning um, so the local Local decisions were made by schools or, or, or districts that run the school. So the central government, the ministry, didn't give any kind of a details how to do that. They they only required a kind of a um, legal expectations in order to make sure that the law uh, and regulations will be will be uh, met. Um, and of course, like in many other countries, there's uh, there's a lot of research going on, or there's a lot of data has been collected. Uh, about that uh, two-month um, uh, period, and t- just before this, basically yesterday, I received the first kind of early, um, early results of the big study uh, that in Finland that is looking at what happened there, and um, I'm going to just show you a couple of fi- interesting findings there. But the interesting thing was that the schools resumed on the 14th of uh, or 15th of May, just for two weeks uh, before the summer holiday, and. Um, uh, teacher union had a very different view on this, whether the, the kids uh, and teachers should come back to school. This was still in a kind of a uh, heart of the, the worst, first uh, wave of the pandemic. Uh, but the medical experts insisted that kids should go to school for the last two weeks of May, which then happened. This is what the, the government didn't extend uh, this um, exception to the um, uh, to the laws and regulations that would have kept schools open, so schools, schools had to had to open for the last two weeks. There were no infections uh, found, and after all, I think everybody thinks, including the children, that it was a good decision to to make to have the kids there for for the last couple of weeks. So now the the data that we have, and this is the, the study done jointly by the University of Helsinki and University of uh, Tampere uh, in in Finland. Um, I'm going to show you some a couple of interesting examples of this. I'm, I'm sure that there will be uh, there will be similar similar studies, research done in Canada and in the US and many other places. But two thirds um, two thirds of the kids say that they have uh, have have had about same or same amount of homework or more. So this this is the um, the kind of indication that. While the schools were closed, that many kids felt that they were doing actually, um, actually more work uh, for the school than uh, before. In primary schools, two thirds of um, kids say that they learned the same amount, or they learned more than um, when they were not in school. Quite interesting, actually. And uh, and the sample sizes. So there were this survey included about 
in 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 some cases about fifty thousand students. So this is a is a national large scale uh, sample, and half of the middle schoolers said that they learned the same amount or more than they would have learned. They thought that they would have learned uh, when they were in the school. So the children are back in school this week. And the, the interesting thing, the, the question that what's what's going to happen if and when the second wave hits the, the, the country, how the schools are going to react to this, the, the government issued a, a bylaw in June just to get ready for this uh, thing. That basically stipulates that the, the school, individual school, has a right to decide whether they need to shift into remote uh, distance education mode uh, and when that happens, so they they don't need to wait for the um, um, the government's uh, government's decision. So here are some of the samples, just to give you an idea how this um, uh, this emerging research is uh, is going. There's a lot of questions about uh, this d- disrupted uh, schooling. Um, so they're they're looking looking at this uh, March to to May period to students, to teachers, uh, sorry, to, to students and parents. And families and carers and many others. Uh, two or three examples here. So this question was to students, and uh, the question was that: Have you have you been afraid that you or your, your some of your family members will get infected by the the um, coronavirus? And here you see that um, actually fairly small number of pri- the, the blue here is primary. Um, Sorry, blue is you, and um, and orange is um, somebody. Somebody in your family would get uh, infected. So, f- fairly, fairly uh, few students actually. There were sixty percent of uh, students themselves who responded, who said that they have never been worried about themselves. Um, and um, uh, so, the, the the children themselves have been more worried about others in the family get infected than the, the, uh, than themselves. The other question, the other example that I'm show, showing you from here is that there was a question to parents that how did your child's schooling go during the, the school closure, this couple of months period from March to, to May. And, and here you see that, um, that most parents, uh, about half of the parents, uh, the blue is the primary and orange is the, the, the middle school, the lower secondary school, half of the parents overall said that the schooling went as well as it usually goes. And and then um, those are the responses where parents said that the schooling went better than usually. It's interesting to see that there are um, 22% of parents uh, who had a middle school students say that schooling went went um, a little bit better, and nine percent say that it went much better than normally. So, you know, one third one third of the parents uh, who had middle school students say they they kind of saw that their kids were doing um, doing better when they were studying at home, and and finally, um, this this is an interesting question to students again. So the the question was whether. The, the student uh, has been afraid that um, he or she has been left behind or lacking behind during the school closures. Just look at this. The, the four, again, the, the blue, blue is girls and green is uh, here boys. But very few, few of these uh, young people actually uh, thought that they, they have been lacking behind. 
about one one third of the boys and girls together were totally disagreeing this uh, this thing. So they didn't think that the school being away from school for Canada or, or the United States or many other parts of the Northern Hemisphere where you have had an annual summer summer leave. But I think, you know, these are also examples of of this uh, research and information that we are now, now collecting uh, around the world and it will be it will be um, very useful at some point to, to compare those things. So, well, so how is Australia doing? And of course, you know, here we have this situation that you have in Canada that all the states and territories have their own systems and they're often significantly uh, different. And, and therefore, the school closures that happen at the same time in, in March to, to May or early June here were in kind of a differently organized in different parts of the country. Typically here in New South Wales, the schools were close about seven to eight weeks. Uh, it happened, it started when when there was a, the first midterm, um, actually first school uh, term break between term one and two. So the couple of weeks um, uh, of that break happened when the, um, when the cl- closures and, and lockdown started here. In many cases, the states and territories extended the length of this two-week uh, term, term break to three weeks or sometimes four weeks uh, in order to um, not disturb the, the, the work of the school. Um, and here, the central decisions, uh, the decisions about you know, how things are run practically were done by um, uh, central state authorities. So it's a very different way of reacting to this situation compared to Finland. And I'm not exactly sure how these things happened in in Alberta or other parts of Canada. But here, for example, the school where our children go to and the school that I mentioned earlier, uh, it was pretty much the kind of a mode of responding to the the, the lockdown and closing closing the school gates was based on waiting for the decisions from the authorities and making the preparations that were required uh, by the authorities. And they were often very complicated and lengthy procedures that the schools had to do. Whereas in Finland, it was much more about, you know, trusting schools and principals to figure out what is the safest and best way to, to move forward. Well, some of the findings here, and, and there's there's probably a um, l- little bit less of systematic information and data yet here in Australia about um, what has um, uh, what has happened. Some of the schools in here in New South Wales and Victoria and um, South Australia as well in Tasmania, I guess Queensland. Some of the schools had to be closed because of the uh, the. Um, uh, the infections were found uh, among the staff or sometimes uh, in, in children. Uh, the national assessments were cancelled. And, and the big issue here has been the what to do with the um, uh, high school students who are graduating, leaving the high school with their um, school living examinations. The um, uh, Victoria, for example, that is now locked down again. Uh, have made uh, special arrangements for those students who are supposed to graduate this year so that their their uh, school living examinations and grades that they need for the entry to higher education will not be would not be um, kind of jeopardized 
80% of teachers here, according to the, the early study by the University of Sydney here, 80% of teachers, uh, that was a sample of about 10,000 teachers surveyed across the country, said that they were not well prepared for these uh, school closures and uh, moving to remote uh, learning. About half of teachers um, thought in the same sur- survey that their the kids didn't learn um, well. So they had this kind of a feeling that the children didn't, didn't um, learn that well, which is a kind of an interesting compared to the, 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 the Finnish thing where the data comes from parents and, and teachers that indicates that actually most kids learned at least as well according to their own judgment and parents than uh, they would have done in the school. Um, uh, you know, here the public concern among parents and politicians and, and also authorities has been much more about this lacking behind uh, that the kids are losing something and uh, that the, the one of the main concerns by some people has been, you know, how to catch, how to help kids to catch up and make sure that their test course will not suffer in the future because of this closure that has been completely absent in the Finnish, uh, Finnish concerns of parents and teachers where in Finland, the most concern has been about the health and well-being of the kids, uh, which has been a case here as well. But the kind of a public conversation has been also much about the losses that kids may may have, and particularly some kids uh, that is correct. But as a concern, the main concern is not probably the first one um, uh, to have. All schools um, uh, are up and running right now, except in in Victoria, where you probably heard about a week ago, last week Wednesday. It went to the second, uh, even heavier lockdown than, than before, which is a very stressful for, particularly for children, to do that again without knowing exactly how long it's going to last. Now, it's a, the, the first announcement was for six weeks, uh, but it may be, uh, maybe that it has to be extended and, and return to normal will be slower uh, than before because of the lessons learned. Um, all the schools here now have a plan B uh, here in New South Wales. If something happens, if things uh, get worse, uh, and what to do. And again, these plan Bs are pretty much centralized or so based on the kind of a Department of Education's requirements rather than trusting schools to um, figure, out, figure out what is the best uh, way to do that. You know, one thing now when I move to the play, to speak a little bit about this play thing, what, has, what is happening with the play, of course, you know, this this is a hard thing because play in in many cases, particularly with the younger children, is about the uh, it's about the kind of a social activities, active engagement with toys and things. Uh, uh, it's it's about you know being close to to one another and you know all those things that people often think that kids should not be doing. And my our research, for example, that we have been doing here with schools has been completely terminated because the the um, the schools schools cannot really um, you know allow children to, for example, use these Lego bricks that Phil was uh, talking about that we use as as one of the one of the ways to um, investigate the the effects of um, how, how the play affects on uh, young children and, and the equity in education as well. So we have to rethink again, you know, how to do this research now and within the next uh, 12 to 18 months, really. But the, the big thing here is that, you know, some of these things that Lego and others have found uh, regarding play that parents and even children have been, um, have been res- kind of a saying that they are too busy to play now. Now, now people have had time to do this and 
and uh, and there's still much more time at home and uh, and and elsewhere for children to you know spend time to play because there's there are less things that they can do do otherwise but my point here is that now when we are asking uh, asking this play that we need to be we need to be kind of a mindful and careful in what are we what are we asking uh, recommending people to do that I, I, I fully kind of endorse what Michael was talking about the importance of safety and health and you know all those concerns um, and and the question now is that how do we find a way to keep the play on and, and and actually strengthen the message that play is important and at the same time understand that it has to be done in a safe ways. The worst thing we can do is that the schools would kind of conclude that they should stop playing, that they should, they should cancel the, the recess in the schools because it's not safe. I think we can, um, uh, in, in Canada and in Finland and basically anywhere else that we can find more kind of a creative ways to uh, provide children opportunities to play and keep the play on more, actually more than before uh, and at the same time making it in a safe um, in a safe way um, so I work at the Konsky Institute and our research is um, uh, basically twofold at, at the moment so we we have a research project going on uh, with the schools here in New South Wales called Fair Play where we are looking at how how play is having an effect on on equality and equity aspects of the schooling and teaching and learning, and then the other one is the um, what we called uh, call growing up digital um, Australia here. That is a kind of a sister study to what Phil and and Michael have been leading in Alberta. Alberta, the growing up digital thing. I'm going to mention that a little bit, but we so we have also also as the um, try to figure out how parents here right now in Australia. Feel about things related to play, and this is a very similar to to Michael's research that he has done. Um, that you know, vast majority of, of parents say that their children play less than that they did when they were their uh, their children's age, and this is a very common across the the different communities and different states and territories here in Australia. So there's no question about uh, whether um, kind of a playtime has um, has uh, reduced. Michael also mentioned about the the kind of a quite common uh, thing in the United States and North America about, you know, children owning and having access to technology here. Just recently last year, uh, a study found that one third of uh, preschool age kids uh, own a a screen-based device, often an iPad or kind of a similar thing. And two thirds of primary primary school kids have their own uh, smartphone with them. And, um, and that's a kind of a that's a kind of a reality that we we are living in in, in right now. So I, I mentioned this growing up digital thing, and I'm very grateful to the work of of uh, Phil McRae and Michael Rich um, with the growing up uh, digital Alberta that is very well known actually here in Australia. Um, and so so we have been repeating a, a very similar study using the same same type of uh, uh, instrument to collect data from from uh, educators, teachers, and principals in, in our schools. And now, right now, we yesterday we opened the, the same survey for parents. And, and the, you know, this, this, is, this is what you saw in, in, in Michael's presentation. And actually, these numbers, uh, the, the proportion of teachers and principals who respond that they have seen increase in, in you know, some of these inconvenient characteristics in the young people during the 
three to five years compared to the kind of past, these numbers are even higher. It may be that this can be explained by the fact that the Alberta study was done uh, four years earlier, and now now these these uh, phenomena and, and issues have just come kind of a clearer. But the, the vast majority of teachers here report that they the kids are not the same. They they are not what they used to be uh, earlier, and the teachers' work is much more occupied by understanding and dealing with these uh, challenges that the kids um, have. Again, this is not to say that you know all these things would be because of the uh, the fact that they the, m- most young people own the digital gadget or device. It might can be some other things, but anyway, this is what we are dealing with. Just to give you a kind of a glimpse of uh, our, our recent uh, report, I'm very happy to send you uh, a link or copy of this if you want to. So we are comparing Alberta and Australia as a whole because we have a kind of state uh, state to state data here as well. So, so but you know, if you look at these things, the, the, all these challenges uh, related to learning behavior, uh, social emotional things are very similar here than they were in Alberta a few years ago. So, so there must be something. Uh, there, there must be something that is um, is uh, affect young people the same way, and um, that the teachers and principals in schools see these things in in a similar ways. Uh, this is one of the big uh, big issues, big challenges here uh, right now. So then we have also asked about Australian parents what they think about uh, the importance of play. You know, the good news is that almost all the parents in our survey, almost two thousand adults across the country acknowledge the the benefits of play but at the same time um, only half of them think that um, you know this is something that the school should do uh, for example by providing children more break time recess uh, free time to play and here in Australian schools the the time to play during the very long school days is a, is a minimum the basically our primary school doesn't have any any signal break during the day that would be uh, fully dedicated to play it's either lunch eat quickly and go and do extracurricular stuff or a tea break or coffee break that is often used for having a snack or or doing something else so so that's a kind of an interesting finding um over there two-thirds of the uh, three three quarters of the 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 parents here think that in early in a primary school uh play should have more clear uh, kind of a clear role in in um, what the schools are doing so the good news you know there's a there's a kind of a room for this type of thing then we were also asking about the how the smartphones and technology social media affect and this is there's nothing new here just to kind of a confirming the findings in canada and many other countries the vast majority of um, parents think that it's uh, it's because of the media and digital technologies that the kids have less time to play and uh uh, they move less than before, and also majority of uh, parents think that the uh, the technology, smartphone, often the, or, or portable devices, it is distracting their their social life and um, life within the families. Again, a very similar thing that you have seen in uh, in Canada, and again, four or five. Um, uh, Australian parents believe that kids are under pressure to grow up too quickly, and you know this this hasn't and this will not change during this pandemic uh, thing. This is this is something that uh, will stay there and is inviting us to think harder about, you know, how do we want to raise 
our children and um, is, is this a good way to uh, go about. Now, if there's a question that, you, what should we do with the play right now when, when the schools are kind of returning, when the kids are returning uh, back to um, school-based learning or, or some hy- hybrid model or learning from home, uh, you, you know, there is not a kind of a good, clear answer to that question, what to do. You know, again, one concern is that if we are if we are not careful, we may end up recommending something that um, that the schools and communities don't understand in a, in a right way. Uh, for example, regarding the importance of uh, of play, so we we have to think again. That's my kind of a main message here: is that we we need to we need to keep on um, reminding everybody, parents and teachers and educators. Uh, about the importance of play, but we, we need to we need to understand what this play here means. A couple of months ago, um, uh, my my colleague and co-author, with whom we wrote a book called "Let the Children Play," we we, we sent an op-ed to uh, to CNN that was published there under this title: "Reopen Schools with the Golden Age of Play." And um, so we wanted to send something to kind of a kick the conversation about this um, this question what is the um, what the school should do when they are reopening uh, in in the fall and our idea here is not just a kind of a traditional way of um, you know thinking about play as we used to think about play in the normal situations before the covid but we we kind of invite in in this op-ed and and you I invite you to read it if you um, if you're interested in doing that 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 schools could do it. and this is this is again this is also an invitation to uh, to your schools in, in in Alberta to instead of trying to integrate these uh, separate elements and times of of indoor or outdoor play into school to have a longer period of time now when the kids are returning to school that we call the golden age of play that would be organized in a different way where the play would be embedded in pedagogy and basically all the things that the schools are doing, including providing children simply more free time in a kind of a safe and organized way during the school day to do their own things um, or play or, 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 or organize something, something uh, with their friends and peers in the school. And so, so we wanted to do this in order to kind of a warn, in, in in order to lead to a kind of a solutions where schools would um, shift into this mode of, you know, catching up or assume that the kids have lost a lot uh, important things and and, and therefore there, there will be no time for recess or play or arts or music. So we we make the the completely opposite uh, proposal here is that let's have a 90 days of schooling that is differently organized that would be based on on music and arts and physical activity and play and games and other things but within the the kind of a context of what the schools are normally doing um, whether it's about subjects or or content of, of, of different disciplines um, uh, so so that's a kind of a one way to think about this play rather than um, try to figure out how the kids can continue playing as they did before. I think Michael is absolutely spot on 
uh, with his um, recommendations and ideas about how to how to make sure that the school is safe, and we have to do that through play as well. So now the interesting, um, you know, the interesting evidence for that that why play is important, um, and this is I'm sure that this is something that Michael Michael agrees as well is. You know, there's a there's a kind of a less there's evidence coming from educational and and psychological um, research as well, but that's often often kind of a harder to turn into a language or to communicate in a way that people would understand and make sense. Our favorite when we were writing the working on the Let the Children Playbook was our favorite evidence by far was the ones that came around the world really that was. Um, uh, written and, and done by medical doctors, pediatricians. And they were saying, they were saying very, these things very clearly based on um, different types of trials and research and, uh, and studies um, that are very hard to kind of a question, if you speak. And, what, you know, when the doctors are making the order, it's even, even more powerful than when teacher is kind of a proposing uh, that the kids must do something. We have also found... Uh, interestingly, probably understandably as well, that many parents and many um, uh, decision makers as well, they take more seriously when doctors are asking uh, asking us to do something than if it's a teacher or educator. I don't know exactly why it is, but that's, you know, these are the kind of things that the, the AAP, the American Academy of uh, Pediatrics, uh, have been now, now advocating for the last 10 years very powerfully uh, about the importance and, and power of play and we have been using that extensively um, and, and I'm using I'm using the, the local pediatricians here often uh, doing the same way to kind of a trying to explain uh, from the, the the well-being and health perspective as well why play is important for kids and and you know get, getting this communication right to parents and schools as well is, a, is extremely important I get daily emails from from teachers and people here in Australia who say that we would like to, we would like to have more play-based learning, learning through play in the school and and this and time for kids here, but the either the leadership doesn't understand why we should do that, or then the parents are resisting this idea, saying that time in school should be spent on some useful things. So that's why I think the the voice from uh, from pediatricians is extremely important. So. You know, I don't, I don't have a solution for you how to how to formulate or or rethink or rephrase the um, the importance of play right now when when you are thinking about this. But my, I would certainly invite you all to think about how the school that you are leading, um, especially the school you are leading now in uh, with, within this very difficult um, difficult time, could include this idea of safe play, uh, the play that would help young people to learn things uh, but also learn to 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 understand that they they need to do these things in a safe way and so there's no there's no kind of a um, uh, solution how to do that universally but these are some of those things that are for example uh, what the Scandinavian schools are now doing when they are returning Finland and Denmark Sweden is that they they are they're building much more outdoor play uh, in a kind of a synchronized way, as, as, as you heard earlier, that the, the kids could be spending and learning much more outdoors 
um, uh, in, in a ways that school would be scheduled in, in such a way that not everybody would be in the schoolyard or in the surroundings at the same time. Uh, but we can also, we need to do the indoor play. Think about, again, how we can play indoors in the classrooms or these spaces that lear learning takes place um, in a safe ways. Uh, and, and not just the, say that the only place to play is outdoor, which is, of course, uh, in this case, the, the, the probably the best way. We can think about intellectual play, something that would go within the within the subjects and a normal instruction in a school, but designed the contents and the methods of teaching in a more um, kind of interesting and intellectual way so that they, the kids would have time to play. We can have guided play at uh, different types of um, activities for kids uh, that would be uh, supervised and guided by teachers or adults just to make sure that this, this will be done in a safe uh, way. Uh, if you have a chance, you have a, Canada has the same same thing that Finland, that there's a lot of uh, clean and beautiful nature around. Let's think about how we can use that much much more than we have done uh, before. And then, of course, the, the free play that we, in our book, we advocate as a kind of a highest order play. Uh, but again, do that in a safe way. So whatever you do, I think the important thing is that you would not think that we have to put this children's play now aside um, because we're going to do that in this situation. I think we need to think think harder how how to keep the the play included in in the work of the school and at home because that many of the children, as Michael was saying, need to play now more than ever before because of their their physical health, their mental health, their happiness and and well being and 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 uh, learning as well. Um, Again, a couple of months ago, I, I wrote this little piece for the Canadian version of the conversation with uh, with my colleague from, from Toronto, uh, Lauren McNamara, where we kind of make this case uh, for the recess that is a condition for play. So this we, we could equally title this, this piece for kind of a, to advocate the importance of play in the school, but we wanted to, to kind of... A, um, uh, we wanted to propose that the the schools and and whoever is leading the school or responsible for the school would think about the recess as a as a even more important thing in the future now when the kids are coming back to school than before. But again, in a kind of a safe way. So if you want to take a take a read um, about that, it's it's written a little bit in a Canadian uh, context in in general. So there's something something for you about that. And then finally. Uh, you know, again, going back to the, the the work of the pediatricians, this is the this is one of the one of the medical medical experts we interviewed for this CNN piece, and and you know, this is what we hear from uh, many of the medic, uh, the children's health experts, like like Michael Rich probably as well, is the the, the importance of play, particularly this um, in these times. So this statement that um, that Jeffrey made uh, was we got this for this CNN piece in early June. So, so these these comments are made already um, when we were in the middle of this uh, this pandemic. Many of the other things that the pediatricians and others have been said have been made without knowing uh, that we're going to be in uh, in this situation. So, let me thank you, uh, thank you for this, and and a little bit like I apologize that I, I was not able to provide you kind of a solution to how to how to in in integrate play more 
more clearly in the um, in the work that you will uh, do. But you know, I have a full trust and confidence in in Canadian school leaders, and particularly in Alberta, um, that is the the highest performing uh, education system in within Canada to figure out how to do this. But again, my appeal to you is that uh, don't take the resources away from the kids. Don't think that you know this is not the time to play. Uh, this is exactly the time when we need to think harder about what the play means, why it's important, and and how do you how do you integrate that in the work of uh, your own school. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pasi. That was excellent. Uh, as as usual, you're making me think uh, a lot more than I want to this late in the day on the east coast of Canada. Um, most of you don't know this, but I had a chance to meet Pasi. Uh, a few years ago in Helsinki and he had his uh, uh, younger child with him and was walking around and he was playing at that time uh, and during one of his presentations on one of those days during that that um, that conference uh, he had mentioned something about that we are always building on the foundations of giants and particularly one that really struck me was Seymour Saracen and the creation of culture and the right culture. And if you don't address culture, then whatever changes you're implementing uh, is not going to work. And I, I think it was a bit of a, a rebuttal against the germ movement, which I completely agree with. Uh, but in this situation, it really makes me think, Posse, about if we walk into our schools as school leaders and as teachers and we decide, you know what? The culture we want to create is about health and play is a massive part about of that health, free play, exercise, yoga, it's mental health, but it also brings the oxygen to the brain. It's about creating that, those networks again, those tribes like Dr. Uh, like Dr. Rich had talked about, but also the fact that these kids are coming back and wanting to do that. So I, I wonder what are your thoughts are on, if we come in with the approach, it's going to be our foundation is health. Play is a massive part of that. So let's say we're doing math, then maybe in math class, then we're doing hopscotch in elementary and we're outside and we're doing counting that way. Uh, or if you're in high school, you're teaching modern history, maybe it's a massive game of risk outside on the soccer field that you're doing to try to create that interaction. Uh, but I also like the fact that you talked about free play, which is really where kids learn how to manage themselves, how to manage groups and how to become a global citizen, how to collaborate. I remember playing hockey and, you know, you threw all the sticks on the ground and you picked up whichever which hockey stick. And, you know, you, that's how you decide to turn teams. And if if it ended up being uh, not balanced, then you would make a trade, make it balanced so it'd be a bit more competitive. But I like the fact that you're saying that. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that. That's number one. That's the first question. And then the second one is your comparison. I'm not going to, to take too much time on that. But what it really made me think about is the status of teaching and the status of education as a whole and how it's perceived in Finland versus how it's perceived in Australia. And I posted an article from Frank Adamson and Linda Darling-Hammond where they were looking at the comparisons. but it was something that really made me think about the collective versus the individual and how public education is strong in Finland versus Australia. We're looking more at the privatization of education and so on. 
And I wonder if those results are affected by that. So those are the sort of the two thoughts that I had uh, coming through at the moment. I also have a few other ones, but I wonder, I would like you to respond to that first and then see how we go. Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely right. And I, I think uh, I think that the hockey nations, ice hockey nations do better in almost anything. <laughs> but, you know, what, the, one thing that we learned uh, already uh, from uh, from this uh, crisis and response, you know, how different countries have responded is that, you know, wherever this self-directedness and the kind of a student and teacher agency has been in the agenda for some time, like in in Canada, uh, very strongly in different parts of the Canada and Finland, they seem to do some, kind of get through, through these things easier than where the control has been much more in the kind of a bureaucracy and administration as it is in, in many, many parts of Australia, for example. And, you know, certainly if we look at the high school kids uh, in, in different, different countries as, you know, based on the evidence that we have now, uh, right now, that those students who have been educated to take the kind of a learn to take the responsibility of their own actions and plan their own work and understand that, you know, whatever they do, they do it for kind of a, their own benefits of their own learning rather than that they would learn for somebody else, for the system or parents or teachers, something like this, that they need to work hard because the school needs to get the high grades or teacher needs to be successful. But those in those places that the the things are getting kind of a, more smoothly and without kind of a major, uh, major problems. I think that the student voice is uh, critically important in these times. Mm-hmm. And, and students can only have voice if if their teachers feel that they have they have the agency of their own work. You know, if uh, you know, if I look at this, and the teachers here in Australia are very different from from place to place. But here in New South Wales, that is probably more kind of a centrally led and and directed place jurisdiction here than than the others. That the teachers teachers have much more kind of a passive attitude to responding and finding out a kind of a creative ways. To do these things than uh, yeah. in Victoria, for example, and you, you know, if you have, if, if the students are kind of a surrounded by this type of mentality that we can only do things when somebody asks us to do something, it's a very likely that the students will adapt the same culture. You, you spoke about the uh, culture earlier yeah. that this becomes a kind of a the compliance becomes a culture here, and that's the biggest problem here in Australia now. Is this kind of a culture of being compliant with? orders and directives and expectations from outside rather than being creative and kind of a responsive and and ha- have a ownership and leadership on these things yeah so that's that's yeah so that's the that's the extremely important thing to understand now that when we move forward that if we want to if we want to prepare individuals who are more resilient and and capable of managing and understanding all these difficulties and changes that, you know, this is not going to stop where the COVID is over. When people yeah. think that when we've done this thing, this, this is going to never happen again. This is going to happen in one or the other ways, whether it's going to be through the kind of a climate catastrophe in the world or uh, issues related to human race and violence or, or, or health thing like this. So people need to understand that these are the things that will help them to, to go through these things. And, you know, this is a good experiment, kind of, a, this is a big social experiment on children and teachers that we have ever had. And yeah. we have to learn from, we have to learn from those things uh, and these experiments, some important things. And I think that this, this is one of those lessons for sure. Yeah. And I, and I think you hit it on the nail when you're talking about you're, you're giving 
not just students, but you're giving teachers and school leaders the opportunity to to learn on the fly and, and, and but at the same time to be empowered to own what they're what they're creating. So you're creating that scaffolding with play-based learning. And then as you move forward, you, you're more apt to take agency and be accountable for it. So one of the things that came up to mind is that you know, if you want to create play-based and research, recess is extremely important. And I completely agree with you. And I read the article with Lauren McNamara and, you know, it would be a pain for a, an administrator to have to look at different groups and say, okay, maybe have a survey and say, who's in your bubble? Who, who here at school is in your bubble? Do you have five or six people that your family is in your bubble? Can we create that recess hour for you so that you can play with those people and have a bit more collaboration? I don't think we're going to get to that point in terms of it, but I like the idea of creating the school day, not necessarily based just on the school hours directly linked to curriculum, but looking at it from a health point of view, like you said, can we incorporate play? Can we incorporate play in all of the curriculum? Is there ways for us to, to embed that which is what you talked about um and and i see that i i've had a lot of interactions with people from all over the world and and a bit like you have and and that's what they're coming up with is they're creating ways for kids to be able to have talking circles at the start of the day they're creating ways for kids to be able to collaborate virtually in mind-based games intellectual yeah, play yeah, uh, yeah. And, and i like where you're going with that i think that's a really strong point there yeah. what are your thoughts yeah go ahead no, go ahead, go ahead. no i i just yeah yeah i just wanted to say that you know this this was exactly the points when 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 Bill Doyle and and I, when we sat down to write the CNN piece, that you know we wanted to make a kind of a bring in a bold idea that is this ninety days of golden age of play. That doesn't mean that kids just you know play for ninety days. That's of course yeah. uh, ridiculous. But but do exactly what you what you said. That kind of a rethink the 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 entire grammar of schooling. Yeah. Uh, of, that school is a kind of a schedule and s- disciplines and subjects and tests and, and and those things, and you know here I think a little bit differently that Michael, if I understand correctly, what Michael was saying about the um, that the this, the this remote learning or, or school in general should follow the kind of a schedule. I, I see Michael's point that it's a kind of a safe and secure thing for parents if you don't know exactly how to uh, how to run a kind of a class, and most parents have no idea how to do that. Yeah. Uh, but but you know the, the interesting notion has been the, the, and this this is a kind of a sign of power of this industrial model of schooling that it's so strong that even when the the schooling is completely disrupted by this health crisis that what what the system is insisting expecting kids to do at home is exactly as they were in a classroom and you know I have seen examples here some of the independent schools that they, the the kids they have a they have a screen where there's a there's a watch there's a clock running mm-hmm. there saying how many minutes you have time for mathematics. And when, when the clock, clock gets read, it means that your class is over and you take the, the English textbook. And, and you, 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 know, if we, you know, if this type of disruption that is changing everything, you know, the way we, we work, we travel, we you know, think about our health and ourselves, if it's not able to disrupt this kind of a way we think about children's learning when they are not in school, that, that's a kind of a sign of the power of this, this model. And so... You know, I've been asking that, you know, why, 
why not kind of reimagine the whole way of, you know, what the learning should look like when the kids are home, you, you know, help kids to learn. And this, this is where the central, central kind of a role of teachers and, and, and schools would be to help them to learn a kind of important things of this time that they would understand, you know, what is this virus? Why is it harmful? What, 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 what does it do in our body? How, yeah. how can we help and kind of a kind of a protect ourselves from from that what is yeah. the vaccine you know why does it take so long to do this what happens when you put this kind of a stuff in your body and, and, and you know all those things now, you know now we now, now we go through this probably uh, 12 to 24 months of disruption as if nothing has happened <laughs> and you know we with bill we say that you know if any school system would take this seriously this golden age of play and said, okay, let's give every all the children kind of a very special three months now when they come back to school. That would yeah. be completely different organized. That this would be the thing that they would remember a lifetime. And they would never even, even kind of realize that they have lost three months of schooling or six months of schooling in mathematics and, and literacy. They would remember this time as a kind of a, the most interesting period of their life uh, in the, when they went to school. But we are still kind of a, afraid that this is kind of a too far out idea and that many people think that we, we have to try to get back to the as close to the old normal as possible in, in terms of how schooling is organized. And, and that's not going to be, this, that's not the only solution we are saying that. No, you, you completely hit it on the nail again. And in, in terms of you can take COVID, create a game and teach your peers and teach your environment. So you're in grade six, it connects to literacy, it connects to numeracy, you can look at statistics, where you can look at numbers, you can look at fractions, it connects to art, it connects to all sorts of different things, sustainable development goals. Um, but that's where the teacher, that you become a facilitator, you're not sure where they're going, but you know they're going in the right direction. And as long as they check off some of the box in your curriculum, they are playing, right? So I, I appreciate your thoughts, Passy, and I'm going to pass it over to Chris, because I know there's a lot of questions from uh, our audience today, then and they want to make sure that they can, they can ask those. Thank you very much, brother. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks to both of you. Uh, so much is going through my mind and a lot of the questions running down. It's funny because just the other day I tweeted this one out to everybody. I'm glad we are listening to the CDC for recommendations regarding COVID, but why doesn't anyone listen to the CDC when they recommend children need one hour of moderate to vigorous physical activity a day? Exactly what you've been saying here. And um, you, you talked about the question you posed, when we reopen, what will play look like? And you talked about the need for that longer period of play. And it had to be embedded in everything, just as we were just chatting about. And Armand, you talked about um, how important that free play part is. And I think that's a huge because of COVID right now that we need to have that whole uh, conversation and engagement coming back. But some of the questions that came up were um, on the uh, value of structured play. And where does that fit into that? And has that been part of the study? So maybe you can just elaborate a little bit on the value of some of that structured play piece as well. No, I, I mean, that's a, extremely important. And, and now I see that Michael, Michael is there as well. And, and Michael is one of the leading, leading play experts as well. So I invite him to jump in whenever you feel that you, you, you have something to say. I think the structured, you, you know, first of all, we should not think that there's a kind of a value, particular value in different different forms of play. I think the structured play can be, it can be actually more powerful than than free play or outdoor play if it's done in kind of a good place. And and there's probably more more kind of a reason to advocate this particular 
form of play that is based on the idea of you know somebody is guiding you know whether we call it a guided play or structured play where there's a kind of a more more guidance and and um and uh, supervision from outside now in this situation where the kids are not exactly free to do what they want to do in the school that we have to be mindful with these things that michael and others have been talking about so i i think that again i think we need to we need to find a a creative solution to these things and not necessarily through thinking of these different categories of play but you know i I have a full confidence and trust in canadian educators and 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 leaders that you are some of some of the some of the most experienced and 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 best educated and experienced folks educators and education leaders in the world that you, you you know you can figure out by using your own professional wisdom and experience to to find out what works for you rather than go into the textbook and see that, you know, this, this is exactly what we need to do. If this was not Canada, if this was not Alberta, but something, um, you know, another kind of a jurisdiction from your Southern neighbor, that would be completely different thing where people don't have the, this type of experience or education or, or culture in, in the schooling. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be saying these things, uh, in many other places, but in Canada, I, I'm, I'm saying that go go figure it out with your colleagues. And Patsy, you, you, that, yeah, that, you say that, but that's also our professionalism, same professionalism as Finland of our workforce that now can contextualize it and personalize it to the children so that it's true play-based learning and true, true uh, personalized learning for the child versus in other areas, you're completely correct around right. the world that they don't have that professionalization. They might have six weeks of training with a bachelor's degree and then they're stuck into the worst possible social economic area and then try to figure that out. Right. So we do have a strong foundation to build upon. Is yeah. That trust you, yeah. Yeah. Trust yourselves, trust your own kind of experience and wisdom. That's my advice to you, Michael. We're going to, we're going to hear you. You muted. Okay. There I am. Um, if, if you're willing to uh, listen to the southern neighbor of, of Canada. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, I forgot to feel from there. <laughs> you look like Canadian. <laughs> I'd like to be. I, I applied for Canadian citizenship, but they've uh, put up a wall in the border <laughs> for good reason. There's always a space in the basement. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. um, no, two things. One is I really like Armand's idea of a game, and I want to tell everybody about actually a wonderful board game called Pandemic, interestingly enough, um, that I discovered and played long before this happened. And one of the things that I like the most about it is unlike almost every other board game, the players don't compete with each other but work together to fight a pandemic. Um, And actually, it uses a lot of the structures of our public health system. So I'm just recommending that to everyone. Um, But I will say as a, you know, sort of a, Uh, a a doomsayer, perhaps. Um, One of the things that we discovered in um, our play research that we did in the U.S. and in Mexico is that we seem to have a generation of kids, um, in some ways, who don't know how to play, don't know free play. Um, Their parents didn't play with them or don't play with them much. Um, And, um, you know, they have the devices. Um, and so, and, and we noticed distinct differences between Mexico and, and the U.S. in that sense, in that there, there was a lot more free play, self-motivated play 
going on in Mexico and in the U.S. And so I think, um, you know, when we talk about free play versus guided play, um, we may have to kind of re-educate kids or educate kids to play before we can sort of cut them loose. And and so um, I think that's something we we kind of need to uh, to think about in um, in a way that doesn't um, doesn't uh, limit them. Uh, but also gives them the tools and the sense of empowerment to do this. You, you know what, uh, Dr. Ritchie, you talk about, you know, the, the stress of not being able to find or, or find games to play or know how to play. And, and you would think they had the most imagination possible because of the multitask and player games online and so on. And you're, you're completely correct. It's, it's about finding building that scaffolding again. And one of the things that we do is uh, is that we build a we build a dice with different games before then they create their own game that might combine different things that they're interested in. But I, I agree with you; it's the same thing as scaffolding for you know how, how do you learn how to learn instead of answering questions to a test. How do you actually add value to what you're doing? So I, I like that point because that's a, that's a really it's something that we don't understand. We don't understand that creativity piece that sometimes you need rails to be able to build upon. Uh, And and I appreciate that. And and actually one other thing that's kind of related is we've got to bring back boredom, right? We have spent all all this technology and all this interest in keeping our kids from ever being bored. So they've never had the experience of what do I do now? You know? Um, And in that, space is where creativity and imagination start not just because it creates a vacuum for it to occur in but because it's kind of uncomfortable you know so you lie on your back in the grass and you make shapes out of the clouds or you start making up silly stories you 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 create you know play role playing and and do all kinds of stuff so i i think we have to we have to really back off from this business of feeling that we have to stimulate and teach and, and entertain our children every second of the day, or more realistically, have someone else stimulate and entertain our children the, uh, every second of the day, and let them find themselves in that space where new ideas can happen. You know what? What's, um, I'm just going to jump in, uh, Armand and Chris, if I can, for a minute, uh, and, and Pazzi on, on this as well. One of the real questions, not only related to play or the ability to support creative thinking through boredom, is what curricular areas um, we turn to, right? And um, also the considerations around um, how we're going to approach reentry. So there's question... A question that will come up that I know Chris will will maybe jump in around, you know, what about music classes? Can they be done outdoors? Or, you know, what about uh, sports or extracurricular? Um, are we going to go back to academics? Or are we going to move to the bold kind of creative suggestion that Pazzi has, has put forward and redefine what school looks like and play? You know, I mean, really, curricular areas of focus right now, um, they're, they're really, um, uh, I think, critical moments for us to have an opportunity to rethink um, what we support for really healthy development, but again, navigating a completely new path in a pandemic. What I'm going to uh, do right now, if I can, and um, I'm going to jump into uh, reflecting back to everyone 
um, uh, the perspectives or the voice of Alberta teachers in the pandemic. And I want to really reflect on some of the key areas that um, we have touched on here, well-being, issues of equity, technology use, um, all of these pieces. And I think it's important to share this just before we close the session um, because I, I want to back to what Pazzi said about professional judgment. Really, the wisdom is in the room. The wisdom or the way that we navigate out of this pandemic is by turning to each other and turning to ourselves, right? We're the ones we've been waiting for, as the old hoppy, um, you know, quote would say. Uh, you know, we don't need to look outside. This is something that we have to turn internally towards. So what I'd like to do is take about 10 minutes and just share um, some of the research that we did in the pandemic and um, highlight some of the pieces related to technology well-being, some of the some of the areas of equity that were discussed. And then, Chris, I'll turn it back to you for one or two final questions, and then uh, Jeff can close off. So, um, what I'd like to uh, just do at the beginning is give a little bit of background. In the beginning of this pandemic, we felt there was a real need to turn to the profession and ask how things were going, but also really importantly, to help forecast forward on a return to public schools and what their interests and concerns were for the future of education in Alberta. Uh, I think that of all things that are happening right now, we're all getting very myopic. We're looking at the, you know, what's gonna happen in the next three weeks, where are we going to be in a return to school, but there's some really fundamental shifts that are happening. And none of us know how long we'll live with this pandemic. We don't know what June 2021 will look like. It could very much look like um, an ongoing continuation of a slow burn of infection rates, of uh, vaccines that last six to eight months, of COVID coming back in the winter months, um, as we've seen the flu. We don't know where this is going. So this research was really to help us inform policy in the future of, of um, Alberta and our education system. So what we did is a random sample of the profession of teaching. So every area of the province geographically, age groups, um, all grade levels. And we had over 8,000 uh, teachers and school leaders respond. We had 8,100 actually respond. Uh, 7,200 teachers and 900 school leaders. So principals and assistant principals from every single corner of the province. What we found with this data um, is that it is within about one and a half percent of margin of error on almost every single question. So the wisdom of the profession is, is really captured in here. There were five key areas that we looked at. Um, those five key areas were, you know, what are your concerns for return to public school buildings? Um, what about the well-being of yourselves and students during the pandemic? What about issues of equity? We looked at technology use and online instruction and got feedback from teachers and school leaders on what they were experiencing. And then we asked them questions about what's changing pedagogically and what's changing within the culture of your school and your school community. I'm going to share those with you, but I'm actually going to start with the last piece of the, of the wisdom of the profession first, which is what are your top concerns for school reentry? And they were very, very clear. In the, I think we had something like 800 pages of qualitative comments uh, from the 8,000 people. And what we heard is that school safety, we need to think of personal protective equipment, physical distancing measures, 
class sizes of 30 are not something that teachers and principals were calling for. Um, they were calling for an ability to um, physically distance in classes of around 15. So reducing class size, uh, larger class sizes, was something that was uh, that was shared in this research, which was conducted, by the way, between April 27th and May 15th. So we did this um, random stratified sample of this survey in that first phase of the pandemic. What we heard was another or second kind of most important piece is how do we support vulnerable populations? Um, we knew that there was a, a great deal of uh, impact with child poverty and growing inequity with the pandemic. As Michael said, one of the trends that we've seen with COVID-19 is it's an accelerant or an amplification of existing trends. So where there was inequality, that inequality deepened. Where we had people that had access to you know, one, two, or three devices, they actually uh, increase their digital access. So, you know, this have and have not, or what's known as the Matthew effect, um, the rich get richer and the poor get poor, it was really being accelerated in the pandemic. So there was questions about with a return to school, how are we going to specifically support vulnerable populations? And I'll tell a little bit more about what we found uh, there in a minute. Student engagement and motivation. Um, Michael had talked a little bit about you know, how engaged students were and, and how they were dropping off. We found this with everybody. I mean, this notion of pandemic fatigue, I think over the summer, we've seen people kind of have a little bit of respite. But as we got into June, people were truly and utterly exhausted. Um, and so there's a real question of how are we going to see student engagement and motivation on a return to school, not just for learning, but in general. And then the curricular gaps when schools go back, there was a lot of questions around what does this look like? And how are we going to, what are we going to focus on? So this question of curricular areas of importance, I think, is, is something that we're starting to see revisited right now. And some of the questions um, that have been posted in the forum right now about, you know, can we go back with, with instruments outside? Is that safe? What about sports? What about, are we going to focus on literacy and numeracy only? Or are we going to broaden and look at things like play and the empowered importance of um, and what's really interesting is there was a call for less high-stakes testing and more authentic assessments. One of the first things to drop off globally has been testing. Standardized testing and all of the uh, kind of regime around that and the investment uh, around the world, we've seen that that's dropped right off the, the plate. So that signals actually um, why, how it wasn't really one of the most important things that we could have been doing and why are we putting that kind of energy and investment into the high stakes testing um, when it was one of the first things to go. So the third and probably um, the one that we really need to think of really deeply, which this session has talked about, is Maslow before Bloom. You know, what about the well-being of young people, of teachers, of school staffs, and of the families? So there was a real call in this survey for mental wellness and health supports. Um, having psychologists put into schools, having nurses put into schools. Um, with the first startup, having a greater focus on relationships, stepping away from the academics in that first couple of weeks, there was a real call from teachers and school leaders to say, we, need, we just need to talk about being together again in this new normal and what that new normal even looks like uh, with schools. And I think that's a challenge for people because the return to school won't be normal. Um, people will not see the schools that they left as the schools they return to. And that's going 
make some adjustment. It's a real transition moment for our society. And I don't think we can underestimate the challenges that that bring. More focus on social emotional learning. And Pazzi, to your point, there was a real call in the uh, 8,000 Alberta teachers and school leaders that responded around a need for more physical activity and play. People were feeling zoomed out, sitting for so many hours a day. has created a real sense of, I need to move. Now, just imagine students in their seats now not being able to move rooms and what that looks like. This this notion of of not doing away with recess and having safe play, um, this is going to be something that we're going to need to really spend a great deal of time thinking and learning about. When it came to uh, well-being, sorry, move this down a little bit. Um, how are Alberta teachers holding up? 70% of teachers were feeling exhausted and 63% were feeling incredibly isolated. The thing that gives us that, that juice is being together um, in uh, an environment where we are learning together. So being at a distance was really um, uh, an isolating experience for teachers and an exhausting one. One of the quotes that was a was very representative was, I feel overwhelmed by the expectations to be working full-time from home while also working with my own children on their homeschooling. We actually had 250 focused uh, school leaders outside of this major study that shared with us, they had a real sense of parenting guilt. Not only were they having to bring structure to the school environment, they were really um, concerned about how they were going to take care of their own children and be school leaders. So this parenting guilt uh, for teachers and school leaders is something that we really want to um, think carefully about because people are people are feeling it inside. Compassion fatigue, which is a real indicator of um, you know burnout, is something that we wanted to look at and focus on. Thirty-five um, percent of teachers uh, in this study in April and May of twenty. 20 were taking on the trauma of their students. And that was because they didn't know if they were safe, they didn't know if they were being fed, and there was a real sense of compassion fatigue growing um, within, uh, within the teaching population and with school leaders. This was, was across um, both uh, categories. 75% don't feel the same emotional connection with their students as prior to the pandemic. So they were really feeling this distance from the students. Uh, a representative quote, I feel disconnected from my students. I wonder, um, sorry, just pull this up again. Um, this, by the way, I'm going to ask Jeff, maybe if you can just share the infographic. Uh, it's on the COVID-19 page off the, off the main website. I wonder what's going on with students and parents and I'm getting no response or feedback. We actually saw over the course from April to May 15th, that the drop-off was really significant from the number of, of uh, students that were only checking in on a daily basis or the families. So there was a, a real sense of concern there. And 60%, 65% of teachers feel their energy level is lower than 30 days, days ago. We saw sleep quality and quantity declining significantly with teachers during the pandemic uh, first phase. And we'll probably see that again as we move back in to this next phase. In terms of equity, what do students need to be successful? Teachers were very uh, worried about the impact of remote teaching on students who needed extra attention. 62% of our respondents said access to extra, extra help above and beyond classroom support is a top concern. So things like 
Do young people even have a quiet place to learn um, because we're not connecting with them? Was there a digital divide? Were they not able to actually connect with us during the lockdown? And technology access, uh, as well as digital literacy, was certainly an issue. You know, kindergarten kids or grade one children and, and technology use, how appropriate was it? Those were all areas that were signaled. In terms of the groups that were considered um, as struggling with online instruction, there was a clear hierarchy in the data presented. Students living in poverty were, were one of the key areas where there was a concern. The second was single-parent homes. Teachers were extremely concerned with children in single-parent homes and with their access supports. Students with exceptionalities, 70%, and then English language learners. And the reason I shared these categories is that this is also for us um, a bit of a harbinger of where we're going to see some of the same population moving forward in the next wave of school reentry um, as potentially struggling. And there was a really interesting uh, bit of data on the difference between male and female students. Um, our teachers and school leaders in this survey said that 38% of male students seem to be having more difficulty in the pandemic than female students, 30% reporting. So there was a different perception that male students were struggling more uh, than female students and something that we may want to consider on a return to school. What were the impacts and were they were not only different ages, but also uh, different impacts on gender. Um, what I thought was interesting was the teacher who said, and I put this quote in here, my students are young children with special needs. And online learning is not ideal or developmentally appropriate for many children. So we're going to um, probably see as we move back into schools, lockdowns again in some places. I'm imagining globally that's going to be happening. And we're going to have to rethink of our experience with technology and uh, where you know, we may see some challenges. How were people connecting? Well, teachers were using email. That was the primary video calls or virtual meetups and telephone calls. Um, we found that in Alberta, uh, Google had pretty much taken over. So Google Hangouts were, were one of the key areas or ways that people were connecting. Um, however, when it came to parents, it was telephone calls. That's the way that uh, teachers were really connecting with parents was through phone calls and follow-ups. And those were seen as really valuable. 35% of students were connecting with laptops, 32% on their mobile devices. And what's interesting about this and Dr. Rich and his research around context and content of digital technologies is not only the type of device they were using, mobile devices like phones and tablets, but they were all over the house. They were finding a corner in their room where they could do their schoolwork, and, um, uh, if, if that was even possible. But this notion of context and then the kind of content and the multitasking that was going on uh, was, uh, was shared. We also found this concern over excessive screen time, right? No exercise, too much screen time. Everyone feeling zoomed out. 79% of teachers noticed that their students' overall readiness to learn, their ready willingness to able, uh, had declined in that period of time. 77% of teachers uh, in Alberta noticed their students' ability to focus had declined in the emergency remote teaching. And 67% of teachers noticed a decline in students checking each day. So as we got into May 15th and the close of this survey, that was up actually in the 78th percentile of teachers saying, um, you know, we're, we're seeing a real drop off in the number of students checking in. 
And then the rapid move to digital platforms had its own issues. And there were four that were really captured in this study. Ex excessive screen time concerns. So of course, you know, the digital well-being that, that uh, we've talked about and how do you manage that? The technology costs for families, so the growing inequality um, uh, and the pandemic really accelerating those challenges. Remote access challenges and lack of support, so rural and urban differences between the rural populations and the urban centers, um, as well as supports. And there was a fourth area of concern that was identified in this survey, which is the growth of privatization of educational services. The idea that companies would now use this as an opportunity to really poach into the public system and say, well, you know, we're here, uh, we're here to take over and help. Um, and a, a comment that I think resonates with Pazzi's presentation that was replicated by several thousand respondents is there's a loss of social interaction and imaginative play. There was a real concern that play had declined in the first phases of the pandemic and what was going on. How are we getting through this together in terms of our what we're learning about our, our learning communities? Um, some relationships have really thrived. 57% of teachers in Alberta felt that they were much more collaborative with their colleagues and school leaders. So there was a that's that's an important majority um, perspective. Where we did see challenges is where there was already challenges within that environment with collaboration. It, it amplified those challenges, but overall we saw an increase in collaboration. Um, among teachers and school leaders. And 91% had, had a really positive working relationship with parents and guardians. We even see now with the re-entry to school that Alberta parents and uh, teachers have come together with their concerns about the re-entry and also our concerns with um, having the government listen to the voice of, of teachers, school leaders, and parents to create the best conditions for re-entry uh, that we could possibly get we've seen the Alberta School Council really come together on that with us. Um, and this question of, but there's a fall off in engagement, I would say this is um, for parents, but I would say it's for all, all of us. I think that this pandemic fatigue really set in. And the comment was, in the beginning, most parents were diligent and engaged. This engagement has fallen off track significantly in the last few weeks. I think as we approached June, people were burnt out. And my concern with reentry is reentry is going to be a, a challenge and it's going to be very decentering. Um, the question is how are we going to take care of ourselves, our colleagues, our students, and each other so we don't see a really early onset of compassion fatigue or burnout in the profession. Um, that's a that's a really significant concern I have broadly read. So you know, in the end, this road ahead, we've been pushing really hard that we need to recognize that the pandemic is going to continue to accelerate and amplify challenges with inequity and poverty, um, which have really hit vulnerable Albertans the hardest, but it'll also accelerate new opportunities for collaboration and digital technologies. And teachers have adapted to that in some positive ways. But if we do not have a healthy and emotionally secure population in this, in this province, along with safe and caring public schools, we won't necessarily have a flourishing uh, economy. Um, our chief medical officer of health uh, will have just made an announcement, which I will direct people to um, uh, around re-entry to schools. And I won't make that announcement here on this Zoom call, but I will uh, encourage those of you to go to alberta.ca slash COVID-19 to take a look at some of the updates now on school re-entry 
Um, and I think that these are going to be important. And what I'm hoping is that we will also see an agility and responsiveness um, to new approaches to create school safety, to support student learning needs, but also to think about Maslow before Bloom, to think about well-being before we focus just on the literacy and numeracy and these gaps in curricular learning. And that's something that, um, you know, we know that our profession is really focused on and is something that we're going to have to uh, keep in mind as we as we re-enter. So with that, um, I'm sorry for the, the quick canter through that research, um, but I do really want to echo that the wisdom of the profession in Alberta has been profound, and the answers and the, and the ability to forecast our way forward is in the room, right? The wisdom is in the crowd. And we will continue as the profession of teaching to really reach into and uh, continue to gather that information from our colleagues across the province. Um, but also I would like to share uh, with all of the school leaders uh, on this call that we will be partnering with researchers like Dr. Lenora Saxinger, who's the um, co-chair of the Scientific Advisory Board, Dr. Michael Rich and the work we do on growing up digital, Dr. Pazzi Salberg and the work he's doing with Good Oz and others around the world to continue doing really smart, thoughtful, mindful research on how we navigate our way through this, but most importantly, how we do that together. So um, with that, Chris, I think we are really running out of time for any last questions, but I'll turn it over to, to Jeff um, to navigate uh, you know, where we might go because I haven't really been following the chat. Um, and, uh, and also, I just want to thank um, uh, Pazzi and um, Michael and Armand and Chris and um, uh, um, Lynn for all of the uh, contributions today and busy schedules at different times um, for coming together to, to help lead this conversation uh, on the uh, return to schools. Um, so Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. And we can go a little bit after four, like a little bit. So I just invite any of our panelists, Chris, Lynn, Michael, Phil, Armin, Pazzi, if you had any last thoughts to kind of tie, tie things together before we close up the session. Great. Yeah, I, I just want to say that we, we are all together in, we are all together in a yellow submarine. <laughs> and re remember, remember, and, and re remember this Canadian wisdom that I always carry with me um, when somebody said that the great good, good hockey player is where place where the puck is, but the great hockey player plays where the puck is going to be. I think it was your own Wayne Kretzky, and this is exactly kind of a leadership thing that we need to follow now. Don't don't do things that you are asked to do that you think are kind of a things that need to be done. Think about where we are heading, just like Phil was saying. But re and remember, here we go. Life is good. No worries, mates. <laughs> Lynn, you had something to share. That song is going to be going in my mind now. <laughs> we all live in the yellow submarine. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to again thank thank. Um, Dr. Rich and Dr. Salberg and Dr. McCray. I mean, I thank Jeff, of course, for for coordinating this, and and my colleagues who helped to 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 discuss some of the items. But I think you know, Phil, what you said, and 
And the more complex, the more complexity that we have to deal with, it's really is about, I think, me drawing on the resources we have right in front of us. And we have so many amazing educators in Alberta. And, um, you know, through the support of ETA and having this type of expertise to help you know, help us to to see that puck because sometimes we don't see it amidst all of the the chaos and the and the and the muckiness of our work. And so, I think this has just been such a wonderful opportunity to think, um, you know, think about those important threads of that we do and how we can start to to see maybe where they're leading and where those opportunities are. So again, I just wanted to thank uh, everybody for being part of it. And and I know Armand, I, I downloaded your article on um, the the. Maslow before Bloom uh, or something to that effect. So again, I'm super excited about reading that and all the links that were shared today. So again, just once again, thanks everyone. And I'm really, it's been a pleasure to be part of it. Thanks for asking, Jeff. Armand. I, I just want to thank you for letting me uh, tunnel under the wall and spend a little time in Canada. Um, I, I accept your offer of honorary citizenship. I just have to physically get there now. <laughs> Um, to, to me, it's at, at the end of the day, we're all in this together. And if one thing I've learned in the past, you know, a couple of years is don't, don't be afraid to reach out, particularly in this time, people want to help each other out. If they can't help you out, they'll point you in the right direction. It doesn't matter how big you think they are or how small you think they are. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the want to help out, I think we're all in this together. So. Uh, I think this is really good for us and it gives us the opportunity to have those discussions and realize that, you know what, some people have learned some different things, some haven't, you know, we have rural, urban, and uh, we've got examples of that globally and it's just the thought, I think I'm reaching out and, and try to get better as we go and there is no right answer to this and we're going to make some errors, but we're going to make them together and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll do it right at some point. <laughs>